When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Devin Allman. You're listening to Jay Scott on the Hook Rocks. Turn it up. Welcome back. It's Jay Scott, and this is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find Pantheon Podcast at pantheonpodcast.com, as well as social media outlets like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pantheon Pods. You can find some of my friends that I always talk about on every show, Vinny Apice and Carmen Apice on the Hanging and Banging Podcast. Uh, Tom and Zeus on Shout Out Loudcast, the number one rated KISS podcast, Martin Popoff, the rock historian, Mistress Carrie, the legendary DJ out in Boston, and Chris and Aaron on Decibel Geek, as well as many others. There's also some of my friends outside of Pantheon, like All Things Blues and Southern Rock, the Itch Rock and Radio podcast, as well as Pot of Thunder. So check out all those and a great podcast community, talking music, talking a lot of new music as we do on this show. You can find The Hook Rocks wherever you podcast on all podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook if you search up The Hook Rocks. Set your app to automatic download so you get the latest episode right to your phone. We've had some Great episodes recently. We just had James Lomenzo from Megadeth, Tuck Smith, who's got a new album coming out uh, first week in November. We had Tyler Bryant. We just had Jax Hollow, the great female blues artist from Nashville, as well as many others. Check out the Mark Tremonti interview. Alter Bridge just re- uh, released a new album a couple weeks ago and plenty of others. We've had over 400 episodes in the three plus years we've been doing this. So there's plenty for you to listen to. And we've got a great New music spotlight for you today. I was introduced to this band by Jason on All Things Blues and Southern Rock in the month of September. He recommended I listen to this album. He knows how much I love the blues. Heck, I I grew up in Chicago, so I was hearing blues in the womb, basically. And 
blew me away. It's got great blues feel, some rock and roll, some R&B, some soul. It's primarily blues, but it's got a little bit of everything. And, it, and the band is GA20, and the guitarist is Matt Stubbs, and he is our guest today. What's happening, Matt? How are you? Not much, man. Thanks for having me. Man, thanks for being here. I, I can't say enough about the album. It just blew me away upon the first listen, and uh, it's been in my rotation now for the last few weeks and just can't get enough of it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we always ask the same first question every time we have a first-time guest on the podcast, and that's really what we're all about. And just like every rock song has a hook that pulls you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, a band, an album or performance that hooked you on rock and roll. What was it for you? I think it was probably when I was a kid, right before I started playing guitar, I, I started getting into rock and roll music. My father plays music, plays he's a guitarist. But as a kid watching MTV and listening to the radio, I think it was Lenny Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go My Way? That was a big tune. That was that was really where I became a Lenny Kravitz fan, too. I mean, he had that stuff before that was really kind of cool. But yep. That really drew me in with the video and this and everything. Yeah, I mean, it was just complete awesome rock and rollness. I mean, that was before I even knew who Jimi Hendrix was. And then my father very quickly when he heard me listening to that and I had the cassette tape. Uh, he was like, well, if you like this, you're going to like Jimi Hendrix. And then obviously the next day I went and got some Jimi Hendrix music and it wasn't long before that that i found blues like traditional blues music what was your introduction to blues uh my father my father had a band or rehearse every week at the house he would have gigs on weekends and he played a mix of blues and early rock and roll like bo diddley chuck berry little richard um and he grew up his his uncle when he was growing up was similar was a bass player and would bring him to see all like Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Buddy Guy, live, you know, he would sneak him in a club. So, uh, yeah, luck, lucky that I have my father to thank for that. Who was the first blues artist that you were really attracted to? Well, I mean, I guess you could say Jimi Hendrix, even though you know, that's more rock and roll, but obviously he's, he was influenced heavily from blues. And then from there, I guess if I think back, it was probably from from Jimi, and then it was Stevie Ray Vaughan when I was a kid, but then Albert King. Lonnie Mack, Albert King, B.B. King, Freddie King, the Kings, basically, like like most people that play guitar and get into blues. Those are the first people that you start listening to. I, like I mentioned, grew up, you know, outside of Chicago. And, you know, blues was everywhere in the 70s and in the early 80s. I mean, I remember, you know, heading down to Maxwell Street, which yep. um, is is that scene in Blues Brothers when John Lee Hooker's playing. That's Maxwell Street. Yeah, soul food and all the tapes and everything for those that, that don't know that. But I just remember hearing the blues and then seeing the Blues Brothers movie, which had a huge impact. Of course, it was filmed in Chicago, but just all those artists that were a part of that, whether it was, you know, Matt Guitar Murphy, Donald Duck Dunn, you know, and then you had, of course, Ray Charles and a lot of others. They mentioned a lot of different artists, too, like Magic Sam is mentioned in that restaurant scene. Yep. Um so, yeah. And then, of course, you know, the John Lee Hooker scene, which was a big scene in that movie, um, it just seemed to kind of grow with me as I went into my journey in rock music. And, of course, the blues was always there. And, of course, you know, the presence of Buddy Guy in Chicago. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just a great, great genre of music. 
yeah, I mean, it's it's my favorite type of music since I was 14 years old, man. You know, I love it. It's so unique because a lot of the artists do the similar songs, right? I mean, you can hear 10 different versions of Sweet Home Chicago, but it's the difference in how they approach the song and how they they present the song, which makes, I think, blues so unique in that because blues is really kind of based on poverty and based in pain. That's really kind of where, you know, the, the, the genesis of, 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 of the genre started from Robert Johnson all the way up through Elmore James into guys like, you know, Buddy Guy and Otis Rush and those, and all those great players. And they all have unique perspective and they have a unique way of playing. They, they, that, that pain comes through their playing, right? That emotion comes through their playing. So when someone says, Oh, all blues sounds the same. You just know they haven't really listened to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like any music. Anything can all sound the same. I mean, country music can all sound the same. Uh, Hip hop can all sound the same if you don't really dig in and do, you know, and 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 learn about it and and train your ear to hear differences. And I mean, blues has so many different styles, you know, like there's West Coast blues, Texas blues, Chicago blues, Delta blues, Hill Country blues. And, you know, you hear people say, oh, it's only three chords, which is not accurate. There's lots of blues that are more or less than three chords. But I understand I mean, the progression of 12 bar blues. People, I think the people refer to that, but it's like any music. It can sound all the same, but if you find people doing it and doing it well, it can be very inspiring. You know what I mean? And same thing with jazz. I remember when I first started listening to jazz as a kid, I couldn't figure it out. Just listening, I'm like, well, it just sounds like they're going crazy over there. Now I listen to jazz, you hear changes and you can, you know, follow melodies and stuff. You train your ear to hear things. But uh, blues, like country music, is also a storytelling music where I feel like modern blues, there's a lot of modern blues out there now that is pretty different than traditional blues. And I think most people's mind goes to modern blues when they hear the word blues. It's kind of got a PR problem with that. Like someone says blues music to me, I go to someone like you just mentioned, Otis Rush or Earl Hooker, um, Gatemelt Brown, Guitar Slim, Johnny Guitar Watson. My mind doesn't go to blues players, you know, that were influenced from British blues and that, you know, going forward into the 70s, 80s and 90s. I don't listen to that style of music. You know, it's totally different. Yes, they're using similar progressions, but it's not. It's a total different style of the music, you know? And I think people go to that right now when they think of blues. There's not many bands playing traditional blues. Yeah, no, there there isn't. I mean, I can think of maybe a, a you know, handful of mm-hmm. of artists. Um, you know, like Kingfish plays more of a traditional sounding blues. Mm-hmm. But um I mean, even Kingfish, I mean, I, I'm, we're friends with him. We've done shows with him. His records, to me, are very modern blues. He can play traditional. He can play. I mean, his playing is traditional. He yeah. can play. I mean, he can pick up a acoustic guitar and play super traditional, super raw. He's capable of it, obviously. He's, he's amazing. But when I listen to his records, they sound like modern blues to me. Nothing wrong with that. It's just a different style of, of blues that, you know, I grew up listening to, you know. I mean, he's obviously doing, he's one of the biggest names in the in the business right now. And he's a super nice guy. And crazy guitar player like really good but when i hear those records that sounds like modern blues to me you know the a lot of it has to do with production just the way it's produced you know and and the way you play but you know not that it's good or bad it's just a different style you know i I think people go right to that when they hear blues these days you know modern blues prior to this i think it was a couple weeks ago uh prior to this conversation buddy guy announced his 
farewell tour. Yeah. I saw and that. yeah. And my son plays and mm-hmm. I've got, and he's a teenager and I've got two teenage nephews and I told him, I go, I'm taking you guys to see buddy guy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my son knows who he is, but my nephews didn't. I go, he's like the last of the original guys. Like, yeah. He, there's really no one else after him. I mean, all those guys from that era in that period are gone and he's a fabric of, you know, uh, American music. I mean, he is, you know, you, you guys listen, I told him, you know, my nephew and my nephews and my son, you guys listen to Zeppelin, you listen to all these bands from back then. They all regarded him as the best guitar player on, on, on planet earth. You know, that's the way he bend the string and the way he, he played. So you got also, also one of the best blues singers alive. I mean, yeah. maybe of all time. I mean, we have been lucky enough to do uh, a bunch of tours with Charlie Mu- playing guitar with Charlie Musselwhite that Buddy was on as well. It was like double or triple bills, and I'd watch him every night. I mean, I've been seeing Buddy since I was probably sixteen, and his voice is as strong as it's ever been, which is pretty incredible to be in your eighties and be able to sing like that still. You mentioned the you know the PR problem that that blues has, and I think there's some truth to that. I also wonder why it seems like there's a there there's a a gap in popularity with with today's music. It be, it's so to me it's it's presented in such a simple way, right? And young people seem to not gravitate towards it. Rock and roll has its issues with with younger audiences. Why do you think there is that decline in popularity with traditional blues? in blues today with, with the younger generation? Well, that's a tough question. Cause I don't want to get myself in trouble. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I mean, I've spoke about this a lot with other interviews. I'll, I'll take a step back and say, if you look at other American music, uh, traditional country music, soul music, uh, funk or garage rock, which is not, doesn't have to be American. That could be British or whatever, or, or European, but all those things have had a revival in the last whatever, 10 years or more, especially country music right now. Um, blues has not like it hasn't, like there's no, when I say revival, I mean, people, uh, making records in a classic sounding way and, and honoring, you know, that older sound. I don't want to say older or vintage, but that's, you know, there's people like Sierra Farrell, who's a country artist right now, and she's making great records, country music. And, uh, Blues, first of all, blues doesn't really have that. There's a couple outliers that are doing it, but I've yet to see many that take it the next step to, I don't want to say mainstream, but to bigger audiences outside the genre itself. Like country to me is doing it right now. Traditional country music, there's tons of young up and coming people making classic sounding records that are getting on other style festivals or getting on just music festivals and they're going performing and they're getting big. Charlie Crockett's another one that comes to mind. He's blowing up. He's playing traditional country music. His records sound classic. Blues hasn't had that. Why? I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. That's that's why we started this band and we make our records. We're trying to do that. There's a few people doing it, um, but not a lot. And I think the word blues scares people. Uh, like I said, it's got a PR problem. You say blues, people automatically go to their their dads in the garage on the weekends playing, you know, with their New Balance sneakers and a and a bowling shirt. No offense to anyone who wears that. But they don't go, they don't think about Buddy Guy in the early 60s just, you know, exploding on the stage and Jimi Hendrix canceling gigs to go see that guy. They don't know. They're not, they, you know, they haven't been exposed to it. And I and I think 
there's been a lot of records made, uh, put out by blues labels and they, they, the production on those sound modern and they sound like they're influenced from classic rock. You know, they're more, they're coming from that angle. Nothing wrong with that. That's cool. There's some, some of those records I like a lot, but it's not, does not sound like the blues that I listen to, you know, and the blues that I love. It's this different style, you know, and the blues scene has really been populated with that. Like I've been playing with Charlie Musselwhite for almost 15 years. I've played most of the blues festivals in the States and in Europe. And a lot of those festivals are filled with those bands. And I very rarely do I go and see a band playing straight up traditional blues. It's not really many people doing it. I mean, if you go to Chicago and you go to clubs, that's happening there. But on the mainstream, it's not. And I don't know if it's that labels don't want to touch it uh, because it's a, I mean, we're, we started this band in 2018. We've put out three full lengths, two EPs, and we have, we're with a non-blues label. We're the only blues act on our label. But they do like soul music, and they're tapped into the vinyl community. So since day one, we've been feeding that crowd and trying to, you know, stay relevant with the blues scene as well, but trying to get opening slots or on festivals that aren't blues. Because And when we play, people come up to us every time and we'll say, what kind of music was that? What is that? And we're like, it's blues. And they don't even know it's blues. They're like, no, it's rock and roll. I'm like, I mean, I, I'll take it. I like rock and roll, but it's not, it's not rock and roll. I mean, if you listen to like a Hound Dog Taylor record, that's what we're, that's where we're coming from. Or, or like I said, Earl Hooker or Buddy Guy. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of a long winded answer, but I think that it's somewhere in there. You know, I don't think enough people are making that type of records or if they are, it's not getting in a place where they can reach wider crowds that haven't been exposed to it, you know? Is it a wider spread problem of basically the music industry becoming now a tech industry with all these algorithms and with all these different types of programs and then trying to find that earworm that, that, you know, people will find because to me, rock and roll and blues don't really fit into any algorithm. And I don't think the fans of those genres really want to be part of any algorithm that, you know, forces music down your throat that sounds similar to what you're listening on a streaming service that really, you know, hinders new bands and new music and different genres of, of really coming to the forefront again. I don't know. I think there's, I don't know. I mean, they're not young bands, but like a band like the Black Keys were obviously influenced from rock and roll and blues. I mean, they're still selling out giant, uh, you know, arenas and, and, they're, I hear them on the TV all the time and their algorithms are on streaming. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a tech guy, you know, I know a little bit enough just to be able to put out records and work with, with our label and how to do things like ads and stuff like that with algorithms. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, rock and roll is not what it was in the seventies or sixties, but I don't know. I think you have to embrace it a little bit. You know, you can't, I know some, some of my friends in the blues world, that are doing traditional stuff. And I know a couple of younger guys and they refuse to put anything on Spotify or streaming, which is cool. That's their choice. I understand. Cause I, I think it should pay more, but if you don't put your stuff on there and you're not really touring, who are you reaching? You know what I mean? Like who, who are you going to reach? I don't know. We've, we've gotten lots of fans more on the road from getting on playlists and Spotify. Yeah. That's not paying. But if I sell the ticket and they show up to the show, I'll have a nice merch display and I'll, I'll do my best to move merch that way. You know, um, and the same thing with uh, not streaming, but like satellite radio that pays much better than streaming to the artists. 
but we had, we got a lot of people coming to the merch table at the end of the show saying, Hey, we heard about you on uh, XM, you know, this song or that song. So I don't know. I think you got to, if you want to do it, want to make a living at it, you got to figure out how it's going to work for you. I mean, everybody has a different game plan, I guess. Putting the band together, you know, and leading up to this album, you know, you mentioned traditional blues. Was it a conscious effort to really focus on music that spoke to that, that traditional blues? Did it just happen organically based on the influences you guys all have? Where did the the music, the style of music come from with the band? No, we started the band to be a traditional Chicago blues style band Um, in 2018. My boss, Charlie Musselwhite, made another record with Ben Harper and his band. So he was going out for a full year with Ben. And it was the first time in many years that, I mean, that's my job. That was my job. Um, so he let the, his band know that we're going to be off for a year. So I was in Boston and had to figure out what I was going to do for the year. I had, I have an instrumental project, but it wasn't a band that could work three to five nights a week and pay the bills. It was, you know, you played once or twice a month or once a week at the most. And Pat, the singer, another guitarist, uh, we were friends and he was really getting into traditional blues a few years leading up. And that's how I knew him. He'd be coming to a lot of my shows and working on it. Um, so I just put the idea out there. Hey, why don't we start a band and just work locally and, and play this music? No one's doing it around here. And I really like it. You know what I mean? It's music I, I really love. And, and I play with Charlie, but I'm a side man in that gig so it was like well why don't i start a band and and we can do exactly what we want so that's how it started um it was it was very deliberate to do a traditional blues band i mean by this we're on the third record now crackdown we've uh opened up the doors a little bit uh, like allowed it not to be so much one you know blown out late 50s early 60s chicago blues we have some other influences that we allow in there that are a little bit more on the fringe of traditional blues you know and, and i think we're developing at this point, our own sound, but I would still say we're a blues band, you know? You know, when you think of the creative process, you guys have been around since 2018, like all of us, you know, we all went through a, a, a pandemic and blues is very much about what's happening around, you know, r- around you and emotions that you're feeling. Was there any type of, of, or what was the evolution of the band during that time that led up to this album? Was there, was there a difference in, you know, the tone, the lyrics, or was it just, you know, keeping it inside, you know, GA 20, the way you guys envisioned it. Crackdown was actually recorded before the pandemic. So there was no influence from that. It was, we didn't know that was coming. Um, Crackdown was actually the follow-up to our first record, Lonely Soul. And we were planning on releasing it in 2020. Everything happened. And, after talking with the record, record label, excuse me, uh, we decided let's hold off until things open up so we can tour and really promote this record because it's all original material for the most part. I think this is one cover on there. And during the pandemic, what ended up happening, once we hit about July, so we're months into it at that point, I got an email from the president uh, and owner of Alligator Records, Bruce, and he had seen the band. He passed on our first record and then came out and saw us and then liked us live. And then hit me up during the pandemic and said, hey, Alligator would like to work with you and put out a record, which was, you know, very flattering because they're a very, you know, they're a long, one of the longest independent blues labels in the States. Um, but we were at Coal Mine Records already. 
And I guess he didn't realize that. So I had to tell him, couldn't do it. And then after I sent that email off, I thought about it. I'm like, well, you know, we always get compared to Hound Dog Taylor. And for people who don't know who he is, is a great Chicago blues musician who couldn't get a record deal in the early 70s. And Bruce loved him. He was, I think he was managing him at first. And Bruce could not get him a record deal. So he started Alligator Records to put out the first Hound Dog record. That came out, I believe, in 71. Um, so that was going to be 2021 was going to be the 50th anniversary of Hound Dog's first record in Alligator Records. And Bruce really wanted to work with us. He want, you know, he was focused on trying to get some younger bands on the label. So I cooked up the idea of getting Alligator Records and Coal Mine Records to put it out together. Now, Alligator's never done that before. Uh, Coal Mine's done some stuff like that. So it was a little bit of work. We had lots of meetings and had to figure out how it was going to work for everybody. Um, and we decided we wanted to do a tribute to Hound Dog Taylor. And Hound Dog also was the same instrumentation as us. Two guitars, drums, no bass. So we, like I said, we were always kind of getting in the blues world compared to that band, even though we didn't do much of his stuff uh, until we decided to make this record. So the pandemic ended up being that. I built a studio and we recorded and released our tribute to Hound Dog Taylor, which ended up being our second release that came up before Crackdown. So I don't know if that, it's a little different, I think, answer than you thought, because we, we didn't write any of those songs. Those are all Hound Dog songs. Well, when you think of Crackdown and how it was recorded prior to the pandemic, how do you guys stay connected with that music, waiting for it to be released the long time before it's released? And now it comes out, it's the number one you know, blues album on Billboard, which is phenomenal. But, you know, staying connected with music that was recorded, we're going on three years now. How how difficult and a challenge is that? I, I didn't find it difficult at all. Uh, first of all, kind of going back to what I said before, I'm trying to write classic or timeless music. So I would hope the way we recorded it and what we wrote would hold up two years later, you know, and I think they're good songs. They're fun to play. When we play them live, there's not like, there's no song like, oh, we shouldn't do that one. That doesn't hold up. They all seem to get over. So yeah, I don't know. I didn't, maybe the other guys felt like it was stale or not, not for me. I mean, they felt even, even more fresh, you know, cause I've been waiting to do them. Well, you're still also creating music too. You know, that's the thing. Right. Like, you right. know, musicians, they, they make their music, they make their record, you know, they do a tour and then they're on to the next, you know, that, you guys were kind of in a holding pattern for a couple of years, but you're still creating as well. And you, but you still yeah. have an album that's not released. So it's kind of a weird place to be when you, you know, when you think about it, like you have this stuff that no one's heard yet that you're excited about, right. but you're also excited about the stuff that you're still creating. That was very weird. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a weird time for everybody, but especially, I mean, I've always, I've been on the road touring for, oh man, 18, 19 years with different bands. So it was, I've never stayed in one place for two years, never mind a month. I mean, I'm always flying in or out or in a van. So it was weird. I mean, looking back, we we were lucky. We were able to be productive. We made the Hound Dog record, and we have two other records that are done that will be coming out in the next year and a half. And that was all a result of being locked at home. Um, looking back, I probably could have been even more productive. But, yeah, I, I, I'm just happy to be back out there and touring, you know. So you come out the other side of this pandemic, you released the album last month, and it hits number one on Billboard, as I mentioned. What was that feeling like for you guys? It was awesome. I mean, we've been lucky. Uh, 
that's the third one in a row that hit number one on Billboard. So like the Hound Dog one hit number one. And then at the very beginning of the pandemic, we put out a live EP that hit number one. So it was three in a row. I mean, you never expect it, you know? So when it happens, I mean, for people don't know what Billboard is, is a result of sales and streams. So like when it comes out, if you hit number one, it means the sales were the highest, which was, was pretty cool. As, as far as, you know, this album and the success that it's having, you know, have a lot more doors opened up for you guys too, a lot more opportunities. Yeah. I mean, when you're in it, it feels like it's moving a lot slower. Like if I step back and be like, oh, that we started the band in 2018, we're in 2022, and I look where we're at, I wouldn't have thought we'd be here. But when you're in it and doing it every day, like I handle a lot of the business stuff and I'm also in the band touring all the time, you always feel like, oh man, this is taking a while. You know what I mean? Like I feel like we should be even further. How do we get further? How do we get bigger shows? How do we get bigger support? Blah, blah, blah. But it's just because you're in it and it feels like every step up, there's a lot of work to get that step. It's not just, we're definitely not a band where it's just falling in our lap. You know, the, the, the thing that probably came the easiest was our record deal with coal mine. I sent the record. They liked it. We had a talk and we were with them. Everything else has been definitely, uh, lots of hours to get it, get everything moving forward. A lot of artists, a lot of new artists are always, I think, kind of struggle with that too. They, you know, they want the success. They're in that grind. They're doing the grind. And, you know, they, they want, they want that success right away. And I can understand why they're proud of their music. You're proud of your music. You're, 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 you want people to hear it. But is there also a sense too, like, as it's, you mentioned, like, you know, when you're in it, when you're in that bubble, it's moving slowly, but when you reflect on it, it actually moved pretty quickly. You know, is, is that, is that, does that help you temper, you know, and, 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 and set your expectations as, Hey, you know, we're, we're moving forward the right way. We're doing the right things. Everything's going the right directions and it'll happen when it's happening. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. When I say it's moving slowly, it's just because I'm I'm an impatient person, and uh, I it's basically like my whole day every day. Like what, when I wake up, I have it's emails. There's social media stuff. There's stuff with the booking agent. There's stuff with the label. There's lots of interviews. So I'm in it, and so that's why it feels slower. But yes, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm very grateful. I mean, this is my job. I don't I don't I don't have to. I don't have a boss. You know what I mean? I we we play music for a living. We get to travel the world. I feel very lucky. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where you want to have security. You know what I mean? You want to, you want to uh, have a fan base and have sell tickets. Those are important things. You don't always think about that when you, like, I didn't think about that when I was a kid playing guitar, learning about blues or going to see shows. I just wanted to play guitar. Now that that's almost, it's only like 50% of it. You know what I mean? Or not even, it's like 30% of it playing guitar. It's all the other stuff that, makes the stuff go forward but uh yeah i love it i wouldn't trade it you know and uh, and i think if you just make music that you really believe in and love you know and you can you can maintain or tread water long enough like to keep doing it i think eventually you'll find or they'll find you know you'll find the people that like what you like that might be looking for it like if i if i like heavy blues you know traditional blues and i made a band because I don't know many bands doing it. I'm sure there's people out there that will probably connect with it too. But yeah, it takes, it takes a lot of work to reach all those people, you know? 
What's your perspective on that? I mean, you mentioned playing guitar is like 30% of it or whatever percentage it is. And then you've got all the other stuff, marketing, social media, doing all these things yourself. Um, that's not something I think a lot of artists think about when they're wanting to be in a band and wanting to create music is all the, the business side of it or the things that you have to do to kind of keep building your fan base, keep building your brand as a band. What is, in terms of perspective, like, like how, how tough was that to learn that um, when you started doing that? Like, hey, I got to focus on some of this other stuff. Um, I naturally gravitate towards that stuff for whatever reason. Uh, like in, in our band, there's three of us. Uh, I'm, I do probably 90%, 95% of the business stuff, maybe more. Um, Pat does some design work. Um, but other than that, yeah, I'm doing all the other stuff and it wasn't hard for me. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of time. Um, and it's probably actually, guitar playing is actually probably less than 30%. It's probably like 20%. I mean, I'm, if I look at how many hours I spend a week on the band as a business, um, and how many hours a guitar is in my hand, it's probably like, it's probably like 80, 20 or 90, 10, you know, the guitar being the, the lower amount. Um, but it's a tough business and we've had lots of opportunities, people offering to be our manager and stuff. And it just, we haven't found the right fit um, to give up that portion of the money for the band. And I don't think so far, I don't think I've met a manager that would be better at it than me. I'm totally happy when I find the right one to write that check and they can do it. But uh, you know, it's again, it's a business. So we have a great booking agent um, and it took a long time to get one of those. So we've had, his name's Michael. He's at Mint Talent. We got him during the pandemic. I've known him. He's Charlie's booking agent and he's Mavis Staples booking agent. And I've known him from years through that, but he changed agencies uh, during the pandemic and we were able to get on his new agency. And that made a huge difference. That took a, a bunch, bunch of weight off of our shoulders because he's just really good at his job and he can get us on the road and keep us on the road. You know, going back to that conversation or that part of the conversation we talk about traditional blues and being the band that you are when you're recording to to get that authentic authenticity sound or that authentic sound that you guys want to achieve and that traditional blues sound are you guys also bringing in equipment vintage equipment whatnot to help recreate what you're trying to accomplish uh yeah yeah all our records i'm a big vintage gear collector uh pat has gotten in on that a little bit and tim same thing with drums um yeah on the records most of it's all like vintage guitars vintage amps a lot of vintage microphones not all vintage microphones um and we bring in really good engineers that know exactly what i'm going for and i, I produce all our music so i'm the producer for everything that's come out so far and so i work with them I'm, I'm very particular of what I, you know, what the end result's going to be. And a lot of it though, for this style is the engineer kind of staying out of the way and, and being minimal. Like the hound dog record, I think we only used like six or seven microphones at any given time. It wasn't, it's not, it's, and it, we're all in one room. If you isolate any of the microphones, you're going to get bleed from the other instruments. So it's more about a performance um, crackdown. There's some overdubs on there. But all the performances were us all in one room playing live. It's not like, okay, play the drums to a click, isolate the guitar, and layer it like a pop record. Um, 
So I think that's the biggest thing. We go for performance. Like lots of our records have little mistakes on it. And I'm usually easier going on that than the other guys. Like they always, the, the, Pat and Tim like to try to fix everything. Uh, not everything, but they like to listen back and get back in there. And most of the time I'm listening to the performance and I'm like, is the performance good? I don't care if you hit a bad note there. Like, how's it feel? You know, is it, is it, is there energy in the room? Are people going to connect with this? And you can kind of fix things in the mix later if you need to. And uh, I think that's the most important thing. First step. Second step is mixing post. I have a different engineer that does all our mixing. And I do that with him. His name is Pat Vicenzo. Um, and then that, that's the real like massaging it and really getting in there and making sure, cause we don't have a bass player, making sure you got enough low end, what instruments creating the low end. Cause you don't have bass. Is it a kick drum or a guitar? Um, and then, you know, really staying focused on what the concept is, you know, that, you know, to me, I want to make a record that is a full album front to back, you know, you put it on and it, it's, it's not, it's not all over the place. It's like a concept. It's about the songs and it, and it works together. And I think we've done that. I think Lonely Soul has a sound. I think the Hound Dog record totally has a totally different sound, but a sound for the record. And then Crackdown is somewhere in between, I think, even though it was recorded second. Isn't, aren't those mistakes, if you want to call them that, or you know, missing notes, isn't that part of that spirit of traditional blues? Yes. I mean, not just blues, but jazz, soul, rock and roll. I mean, early Beatles records, you know, they have mistakes on them. I mean, they're not, they don't, they become not mistakes, though. They become just part of the song, you know, it's old blues records. I Man, I remember, you know, I backed up a lot of harmonica players through the years, uh, other than Charlie, but guys that like little Walter is, a god to most blues harmonica players and so you have to learn all these guitar parts to back them up and so many of those songs have quote-unquote mistakes meaning like the progression changes you know one bar it's off or the vocals come in early or late or on the verse they're different the second time around so technically when you first start learning you're like oh it's a mistake and then you realize like well they're just following the singer is it a mistake or are they just following him you know and all these blues harp players, I remember, they would make you learn the quote-unquote mistakes. Some are obvious. Some are like, oh, they they messed up. Probably should just play it correct, you know, and don't. But there's that, like, Hound Dog, man. That record's a perfect example of this. Songs where you first listen, you go to learn it on guitar, you're like, oh, they messed up. They dropped two bars there. But they do it every time. So it's not a mistake, right? It's like that's you're they're following the melody line of, of Hound Dog, and that's the way the song goes. I don't know. It's it's So I don't know if it's a mistake, you know? Weird. Do you ever write a song or demo a song and, and say to yourself, I need this this piece of equipment to make this song what I want it to be? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh I have I think I have most of the stuff I need at this point because I've been collecting for years. But um yeah, I'm always buying amps and guitars and, and for the Hound Dog record, a good example of that was, you know. Pat didn't really play a lot of slide guitar yet. And we decided to do that record. So he had like three months to like learn all the Hound Dog style slide playing. But Hound Dog used a really particular guitar. He used a, an old Tysco or they call it a Kingston. Uh, it's like a cheap Japanese guitar from the sixties. So we bought leading up to that session, we bought maybe five or six of those. We were just searching for them on Craigslist or on, on reverb.com or eBay or whatever. And we were just buying them like every week he'd buy a new one or I'd buy one. And we would just during rehearsals 
listen to Hound Dog and then put it through the amp. And we bought similar amps that they were using. So in that case, that record especially was like we all bought different shit for for that for that record. Uh, luckily, it wasn't very expensive stuff. You know, it was like eighty dollar guitars or something. What's next for you guys? I know you guys have some tour dates coming up. I think you're going to Europe here. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what, what, I know you, I mean, I think there's like what, 10 remaining dates in the U S or something like that. Uh, we just finished a five week tour, like coast to coast with two of our label mates, the monophonics and Kendra Morris. Um, and then we had, we had about a week off. And then this weekend we have a couple Northeast shows in Massachusetts and, uh, Philadelphia. Then we go to Europe all of November, uh, UK and Europe. And then we come home, take December off for the most, we have one gig in Massachusetts. And then in January, it looks like we start back up. I think we're doing a whole Southern tour and we have a, a live album coming out probably in March, a full length live album. Weren't you guys just in Chicago too, like, like a month or so ago? I, th- like I think it was like two or three weeks ago. We were at the chop shop yeah. on that tour with Monophonics and Kendra. Yeah. Yeah. So after I listened to your record, I'm like, man, I got to go see these guys. And you guys had already played Chicago. I'm like, Oh, oh yeah. Uh, it's one, it was one of the best gigs of the tour, man. Every time we play Chicago, it's great. Last time we were there, about a year ago, we were at Martyrs, and that was a good one, too. Well, I haven't been there. Yeah, that's a great place. Yeah. Hey, man, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and doing this. Love the album. Um, I appreciate you coming on, man. Like I said, love the album. Big fan of it. And uh, can't wait to catch you here in Chicago at some point. Cool. Thank you, man. Everyone, that's Matt Stubbs from the band GA20. Get their new album, Crackdown, out uh, early September. It's on all streaming sites. You can also pick up a physical copy, I believe, on their website. So go check out that at GA20band.com. That's GA20band.com. And check out their store. I believe they've got some uh, vinyl in there, too, as well, for you to order. But it's a great album. Check it out. You'll enjoy it. I'm Jay Scott. This has been The Hook Rocks. Take care of each other. We'll talk soon. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 